Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everybody, to another Macklin's Take lockdown bonus episode. And this week we've decided to bring you a U.S. special. We've had a lot of great guests on from the United States of America, and we decided to look back on some of the best bits from the podcast that we've done with guests stateside. And we start with uh, Thomas Hauser. Thomas really needs no introduction. Uh, an elite level print journalist uh, and author from New York. And he's followed by Steve Farad, who fits into the same kind of bracket. Steve, though, has obviously also worked extensively in broadcast. Now, both of those two we spoke to in New York not far off this time last year, actually, ahead of AJ against Ruiz. And that was quite early in the Macklin's Take journey. So it may be that you've not listened to those episodes in full. If that's the case, then do go back and, and check them out. You'll, you'll find them uh, comfortably. And they're followed by Michael Buffer. And Michael doesn't really need any kind of introduction, I don't think. Uh, nor does Paulie Malinadji, two-weight world champion, now an elite-level pundit. And then we finish with an active fighter, a fighter who currently is justified, I think, in making her claim to be the greatest woman of all time. And that's three-weight world champion, Caressa Shields. So it's a decent cast. Hope you enjoy it. Oh, the shark baby has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby And it keeps it uh, out of sight You know when that shark bites In a way, though, the fact that there is no overarching authority taking charge of boxing, and there never has been, is the problem, isn't it? Because... These particular scenarios we're discussing here, really it's only the promoters probably who could solve it by saying to judges, listen, this is not what we want from you. We don't want you just to find in favour of our fighter because you fancy a trip here, there and everywhere uh, and object to their appointment in future if they felt that that was what they were doing. But, but boxing's governed by self-interest, isn't it? And that's not really in their self-interest, I suppose. Well, the, the promoter does want the bad decision in certain instances. The promoter does not want his cash cow to lose. The state athletic commission is charged with seeing that it doesn't happen, but either the state athletic commission doesn't care or might not even understand. I mean, most state athletic commissions in the United States are run by people who are well-connected politically who are adept at doing favors for powerful interests, but they don't understand the sport and business of boxing, and they care even less. They want their jobs. They want to be able to sit at ringside for big fights. But regulating the sport properly is down at the bottom of the list of priorities. Thomas, moving on then in terms of I suppose, regulating sports and commissions and everything as well. Um, you, did a, you did an absolutely fantastic, in-depth, investigative piece a few years back on PEDs in boxing. Uh, you know, and even as uh, an enlightening as that was, and, and as scary as that was, it, it, it's, it's just becoming an ever-growing problem. 
where, where does it end? And, and how, how do... Well, I, I can tell you how it ends. It ends with fighters being badly brain damaged or killed. And it ends with a whole generation of fighters having more cognitive issues than would normally be the case because they're being hit in the head by fighters who are using performance-enhancing drugs. Now, I've written a series of articles, as you said, most recently for SweetScience.com, uh, before that for SB Nation, for some other websites, tracking the use of performance-enhancing drugs in the sports. And there are a lot of culprits. The state athletic commissions are culpable. USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, is certainly culpable. And one of the articles I wrote, and I would urge your readers to go to Google, you know, type in... Thomas Hauser at USADA, and check out some of the things I wrote. One of them was last September, I wrote an article pointing out that USADA had tested more than, conducted more than 1,500 tests for performance-enhancing drugs in boxing and reported one positive test result to a governing state athletic commission and that one report came after the result was leaked on the Internet. And what basically occurred was USADA had worked out a sweetheart deal with PBC and Al Heyman to test their fighters to get the veneer of proper drug testing. But then the positive test results were being buried. And USADA subsequently admitted to several state commissions, well, you know, we had positive test results, but we adjudicated them internally. Well, USADA is not supposed to adjudicate test results. USADA is supposed to say these are negative tests, these are positive tests, and it's up then to the governing state athletic commission to adjudicate. VADA, run by Margaret Goodman, the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, does a good, honest job. And one of, the, you know, one of the frustrating things about writing is you can write again and again and again and bring injustice to light and nothing much happens. But after I put my article up last September, USADA, which had made millions of dollars from drug testing professional boxers, stopped drug testing professional boxers. It got too hot. So at least for the time being... We've put USADA on the sidelines. If they want to test honestly and report honestly, fine. But I haven't seen that from them. Meanwhile, you're a fighter. You know what happens to you. And you know there are fighters who perform now at a level where, you know, realistically speaking, they couldn't do that. Fighters do not get older, bigger, stronger, and faster all at the same time in the 1930s. With more endurance in, in, in their late 30s. It doesn't happen if you're doing it honestly. Now, you know, are there exceptions to what you would think of as normal performance? Yeah. You know, if Rocky Marciano were fighting today, you'd say, amazing. He just keeps punching and punching. He gets stronger during a fight. He can take anything. His endurance is incredible. Well, we know Rocky Marciano didn't use PEDs because they didn't have them. Muhammad Ali. Oh, God. This guy's reflexes, his speed, yeah, not possible without PEDs. But again, Ali was before PEDs. But if you look at trends in sports and what's happening to fighters today... It's not all good, honest conditioning. They're not all exceptions to the rule. It's a general pattern, a trend, as yeah. you say. Like you say, you'll always have the individual exceptions to the rule, the special talents or the exceptional uh, durable guys. But when it's, uh, like you say, a general pattern, a trend, that, that's, when it, that's when the alarm bells are uh, ringing loudly. And the only serious testing is coming from VADA, and not enough fighters are being subjected to VADA testing, and VADA doesn't have the funds to do it often enough. So do they catch people occasionally? Yeah. But the state athletic commissions, uh, and I can't speak for every commission, but I can speak for a lot of them, particularly in New York, has shown no inclination to deal with this problem. In fact, the New York Commission, which basically takes its orders 
from political higher-ups has been told to back off on PED issues. Which, which is kind of scary, Thomas, and really when you think about the light that your article shone on it, which you took upon yourself, you did the investigate, investigations and all the inquiries, but really I think what boxing needs, it needs a separate independent body that basically carries out the work you did on that article, but, you know, 365 days of the year, you know, recruits information, does testing, and or, or certainly at least monitors, scrutinises that testing. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, but, I mean, it, it's something along those lines. There yeah, needs to be something independent. Here in the United States, that won't happen because the Association of Boxing Commissions is toothless. The state athletic commissions individually don't have the knowledge the will or the finances to do it right. At the end of the day, it's going to have to be the fighters who take control here. It's going to have to be the fighters who say, wait a minute, we're getting hit in the head harder, not just in fights, also in sparring in the gym, and we have to stop this. Um, one, one last quick one before you, 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 you speak. Andy, uh, you're trying to get in there. But um, in, in, in the UK, Thomas, the British Boxing Board of Control, every boxer that's registered, licensed with the Board of Control are subject to random 365-day blood and urine testing. And I don't know of any other commission in the world where that's the case. And obviously, it's nationwide spread, and they can knock at your door at any time. Surely the USA, I know there's different states and everything, but you would imagine that every commission within the U.S. should all kind of sign up to that, that any fighter that's licensed with them should be subject to that. But they, they don't, the states don't want to do it because New York is afraid that if it really cracks down on PED use or to, were to make Al Heyman be licensed as a promoter, which he obviously is, or were to crack down on judges or referees who shade things a certain way, then New York will lose fights to Las Vegas and California and Atlantic City. And the powers that be in New York, and by that I don't mean the people who are sitting on the commission in New York who are a joke, I mean the people, the lobbyists who go to Andrew Cuomo, the governor, and say we want this to happen and we don't want that to happen and back off on the phony you know, purses that we're filing with the commission to escape state taxes and back off on the nonsense uh, PED program you have. In New York State, which spends millions and millions of dollars a year to so-called regulate boxing, the PED program consists of telling a fighter to urinate in a cup on fight night. Do you realize how stupid you have to be to flunk that drug test? Well, that's, that's one of the other issues, isn't it? This, it's the lack of uniformity. What is in and out of competition is one of them. For example, Billy Joe Saunders, he fell foul of VADA testing, but that was different to UCAD or USADA testing with the measuring of what is and is not in and out of competition, which just seems utterly absurd. It, it was really interesting to hear you say that it'll be the fighters who have to take control because... Interesting comments from Julian Williams after he beat Jarrett Hurd, basically saying, whoever wants to fight me, and I have a list of fights I would like, sign up to VADA, get yourself tested, prove that you are clean, or you are not going to fight for my titles. And that, that's kind of what has to happen, I guess. And I thought that was great. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. You know, uh, Tony Harrison beat Jermel Charlo and uh, that was a fight where both Charlos you know, they fought on the same card at Barclays Center and both Charlos missed tests when Vada came to uh, test them before their fights uh, I think one fought Matt Korobov and the, the other fought uh, Tony Harrison both fighters missed tests and the New York State Athletic Commission looked the other way let the fight happen. Tony Harrison was very upset about it. He said, well, from now on, there's going to be serious testing. But uh, I don't know that Al Heyman stood behind him on that. Now, because those were for WBC titles, they're in the WBC clean boxing program. But 
there's very little money there to provide for the testing. And when these two guys blew off tests, the WB said, well, we're going to find them the cost of the collection agent, but that's it. We're not going to interfere with their status with the WBC in any way. Now, what happened there was the collection agents went to the Charlottes homes. They were met at the door. They were told they're not here. Can we come in and look around? No. Do you know where they are? No. They tried their telephones because under the program you have to register so there's a contact number at all times. They didn't pick up their phones for the whole day. Afterwards, one of them tweeted, well, we were doing promotional work out of town. Okay. So if you're serious about getting to the bottom of this, you call them in under oath and you say, where were you doing your promotional work? Who were you doing it with? Where did it appear? Where are the travel receipts for all this? Didn't happen. The New York State Athletic Commission backed off. Initially, they sent a letter asking questions. Then they were told from above, back off. We don't want to interfere with a fight card at Barclays Center. They backed off, but the commission was told, well, you can test them again if you want to. So the commission says, okay, we're going to test you on such and such a day. In today's world, with microdosing, telling a fighter you are going to test his blood or urine for PEDs on a certain day is like telling a drug dealer, we have a search warrant to come into your apartment next week. Do you really think the drugs are going to be in the apartment when you go in next week? I mean, let's get real. Either you want to deal with this problem or you don't. And right now, the powers that be in boxing don't. They seem to be the ones that are starting to excel. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick 30-second story that moved me tremendously. It was only two, three weeks ago. We streamed some fights on Showtime before our last fight. It wasn't the Wilder fight. It was whatever fight we did after that. Anyway, one of the fighters, B-side opponent, was from the mountains of Nicaragua. And he had just fought three weeks earlier, uh, Daniara Yelousinov, in Monte Carlo, and he got paid $10,000. And in recounting this story, and he was getting paid $8,000 for this fight at Barclays, he started weeping, and he wept. I've seen fighters cry at fighter meetings. They you know, recount their, their lives, and sometimes it's very moving. But this fighter was sobbing for the entire fighter meeting, the entire 15 minutes. He just couldn't express to us how much meaning this money had to someone like him. And it really, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. We work at a, a high level, and we're dealing with mostly with fighters who are at high levels. To deal with someone like this and see his reaction was, was just, it really put things in perspective about how meaningful a few dollars can be to these fighters who don't have anything, and also how different someone like this is from a Deontay Wilder or an Anthony Joshua or the fighters we regularly deal with. Do you find yourself, boxing's an underdog sport, all around really in many ways but do you find yourself kind of pulling more for characters like that I think we do me and Matt do most of our commentary together and and you keep it balanced but we'll talk off air and we talk a lot about fighters with real records somebody can have a terrible 22 and 0 whereas somebody can have a good like 11 and 8 but they've just been put in harder they've been put in tougher because it's not it's not a level playing field a lot of it's about selling tickets there are all sorts of things attached to to boxing when you turn professional that can dictate really how your boxing life turns out. Have you got any kind of favourites that stick in mind from, from the beat down the years who people probably won't have heard of? Well, for one thing, I agree with both of you. I tend to na- to, to enjoy fighters like that success much more than the fighters who maybe had the big international amateur experience. The guy today that I, I first think of and and you know, we're doing a DAZN show. He's been on two or three DAZN shows already. Is Tevin Farmer. You know, th- th- we all know this is a sport of haves and have-nots. And if you're, you know, just because you're a have doesn't mean you can't fight. Lord knows Ray Leonard was a superstar before he ever turned pro. And he was as tough as anybody who ever existed. And he was a have. But when the have-nots make it, the odds are so overwhelming, overwhelmingly against them that you have, to, you have to root for them. If you're not, you don't have a heart. Yeah, I mean... I wasn't from poverty. I, um, I, I did A levels. I started a law degree. T- dropped out and turned professional at nineteen. Um, you know, I, went, I was privately educated. You know, there was no, 
I didn't come from a tough upbringing or anything like that, but I was always massively competitive, wanted to win it, everything I did, um, you know, Gaelic football, hurling, uh, soccer football, always get stuck in. So uh, I, I also, I mean, there's no doubt, you said we talked about the uh, the guys in the old Soviet Union that come from poverty, and you're definitely rooting for those guys because they've got, that probably is their only chance in life. You know, I mean, boxing wasn't my only chance, but... I suppose the competitive nature of me, I still wanted it. It was all my hopes and my dreams. It was still meant as much to me. You know, I was still prepared. I think I think I proved I was as, as tough as anyone and, and dug as deep as anyone. So, but um, it, it, I, I can't help but root for a guy that's come from a tough upbringing. I just can't help it because, you know, and especially these guys that, you know, and, and again, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been the uh, the promoter's fighter. I had the, the, the stellar amateur career, big, big deal turning over and all that kind of thing. Uh, had a last, had another last in my career. All, all of a sudden, you're well, maybe he's not as good as we thought, and then you're trying to work your way back up there with a with a smaller promoter, and it's um, it's tougher, you know. And, and, but I think it builds a lot of character in you, and I think you uh, you, you you when you get in there, and you, I certainly now covering the sport, having retired, I definitely when I see a guy that's coming in and he might be 26 and three, but I look at his record and he's he's four, he's gone in as. Obviously, the B side of some of these fights because he's fight boxing guys who are fifteen and zero and sixteen and all this thing. And I, you know, a part of me thinks really wants to will him on. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. you know his story's not over yet, and he, he's a he, he just because he's lost a couple that does not mean anything. That doesn't mean he can't go on and still become world champion. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! How did you find it when you first came into boxing, kind of dealing with fighters or trying to connect with them on a personal level, if you like? I don't know too much about your, about, about your background, but from, from my own point of view, hadn't boxed, um, middle class, Nothing in common, really, with these lads I would go and see in the gym. Nothing whatsoever, apart from the fact that I that I love boxing. But as you say, they are open, they are interesting, and and also they're interested. They're, they're kind of yeah. the only athletes I've come across where they will want to know about you as well. Yeah. They're not. It's not. It's not. It's a two way street mostly. Sure. I, I, one of the things I always found very ironic is that, and I, I saw this immediately, of course, is that for the most part, the people covering the sport are white, middle class. And educated. And we're covering athletes who, for the most part, in America at least, are black or Hispanic, uneducated, and lower class. And we're being asked to relate to these people. And, it's, it's, and, and, and being a non-boxer, it, it's very hard to. It's not really important to relate to them. It's important to understand their stories and be able to tra- transfer their stories to the public. But, um, yeah, I, I think uh, the other thing int- that's interesting for me, having done this as long as I have, is that when I was 21 and I was covering fighters, most of the fighters were older than me. Then at some point, they were the same age as me. Then at some point, I was old enough to be their father, and now I'm old enough to be their grandfather. So that changes the perspective of how I mix with them and how they see me as much as how I see them. But I think one thing you said there um, earlier, Steve, and I thought it was nail on the head, they may not be educated. That doesn't mean they're unintelligent. There's a lot of very bright fighters, you know, and and I know that goes against the common myth, but there's there's an awful lot of fighters that, uh, yeah, they may have come from tough footbringers. They may not have had much of a chance other than boxing. But certainly when you speak to them, you can see they're intelligent. Oh, yeah. Maybe the best example of all of that is Mike Tyson. You know, obviously an uneducated guy, but if you spend 10 minutes talking to him, he makes observations that blow you away. And you say, I, I didn't see that or I didn't think that. And he's, he can actually be fairly eloquent when he does it as well. You know, uneducated guy. I think what makes athletes different is that they've chosen something which often just rules out higher education because you need to turn professional when you're young if it's soccer back at home you know you'll, you'll be out of school by the time you're 16 I know it's different here because they all go through college um, so it, it is in that regard um, not quite the same but often they do something that precludes furthering their education and as you say it's not because they wouldn't necessarily be academically gifted enough to do it 
in terms of New York fighters, in terms of New York as a as a boxing city, do those kind of hotbeds still exist? There's no point yearning back to almost a century ago where you'd have neighbourhood fights, you know, one kid from one street would fight a kid from another street yeah. and they'd pack out the local arena. Are there still places in New York you can go where boxing is, is bigger than, than it is anywhere else? Sadly, I would have to say no. Um, every neighborhood used to have fighters that people associated with that neighborhood. They would go fight in a club show, and they would be supported by their neighbors. Economics dictates that that's almost impossible today. It is so expensive to find a room in, Amer- in New York City, specifically in Manhattan, which is where I live. Um, Lou DiBella is, has kept boxing alive in New York City for the most part for the last few years. Matthew, you used to fight for Lou. The cost, I mean, he's going to lose money running a small show. There's just no way about it. You know, Broadway boxing is not uh, a profitable thing. And it's because of, just like it is expensive to live in New York City, it's expensive to... to promote a boxing card there and that that's one of the reasons there are fewer fighters you know they have to move they have to go elsewhere so many fighters move to las vegas for instance they they go to floyd's gym and they hope to get seen by floyd and maybe signed by floyd but that's where they go where those opportunities are just not in new york or or a lot of cities like it so when did you first come here then when did you first start to get the call regularly to come over to the uk the very first time i came here frank warren brought me over for a a fight in Stratford, was it? I think uh, just uh, outside of Manchester. Yeah, there is a, a Stratford. Is it Stratford or Stratford? I think it, Stratford. I think it was Tony Simpson. Stratford like or Salford, maybe? Was that against Marvin Hagler? Tony Simpson. He did fight ha- Hagler uh, before that, but Sibo uh, was fighting. I think it was Tony Simpson, and it was um, around nineteen. Oh, 87, somewhere in there. It, it, it just seems... And that, that was the first time I came and worked in, uh, in the UK. And I remember a, uh, we were having a delay from American TV. And the crowd was getting restless. And here we're, like, dragging it out. And so earlier, there had been a, uh, a stink bomb, an ammonia bomb. Somebody, you know, some clown always does something. And so I announced to the crowd that... We, uh, there was still a residual effect in the ring, and we had to wait for it to clear. And they were like, oh, oh, oh okay, okay, that's cool. You know. So the crowd all shut up and just started singing and whatever. And uh, you, know, you always have to, uh, sometimes as an MC, you have to uh, put a little bit of bullshit out there. So uh, one time I remember was a fight broke out in Resorts International. We used to do fights in the theater. And the ring would be right in front of the stage. And then it was just like, you know, a theater like in Vegas and Atlantic City. You have all the banquettes. It's not regular chairs and, and uh, you know, the different levels. And so a fight broke out in the audience. And uh, so I introduced Frank Sinatra as, as though he was there. Of course, he wasn't there. And the two guys <laughs> fighting actually stopped to see, to see where Frank Sinatra was. And security grabbed him and took him out of there. But... Sometimes you have to ad-lib a little bit. So I found the fighter thing. This is a great example of what we were just talking about. In, in these days, I can pull this up straight away. Bingley Hall, Stafford, Staffordshire, Tony Simpson against Frank Tate for the IBF World Middleweight title. That sounds like, that sounds like the one. So that was, that was February 1988. Okay, going back a bit. I remember I, went, I stayed in London for a few days and it was very cold, so February sounds right. It's not exactly a tourist destination, Stafford. If it's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really... I don't, I don't want to get a torrent of tweets from Stafford-based Macklin's Take fans here just abusing us, but it's not really the kind of place that you would spend your own money no, he, to go to if you come Leicester, over from America. Wasn't he? Simpson was Leicester, Shear or Leicester that way, so that probably was where it made sense to do it. But you seem to very much enjoy coming over here. Uh, we see you regularly here now, of course. And what have you made of what has happened over the last four or five years? People have been talking about a British boxing boom over the last four, five years in particular. And it goes in cycles of sport, doesn't it? Because Hatton brought a similar thing along. Nassim Hamed brought a similar burst along. You saw all of that. Is, has this one been different? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the thing you're holding in your hand makes a big difference in, in the way... Um, more fighters from uh, the UK have gotten uh, respect and notoriety and I, what is it like 12 or 13 world championships at one point uh, a couple of years ago all at the same time we're right here in the UK and 
because uh, you're, now we have European fighters and uh, you got uh, a Polish fighter, you know, that's a big star uh, fighting on the card tonight. And uh, the, the ability of fans and with telecommunications and with social media, it's become more global and more international. And that's really contributed to the fact that the history that I've seen in the UK is great, loyal, knowledgeable fans. They've always had the crowds here. They've always had the support for fighters. I mean, I remember doing some of those uh, Nazim fights in Manchester, and uh, there would be a, a four-round fighter from uh, Yorkshire on the undercard, and he had 800 people come just to see him fight. That, that's loyalty, and that's the fan base was always here. So now... That's transcending because everybody everywhere gets to see all these fights. These fights that are broadcast on DAZN to America, they get to see the entire undercard. They get to see some kid that's in a four-round fight, in a six-rounders, and eight-rounders. And good fight fans like to watch that stuff. So it just, it, it all, you know, adds to the, uh, the boom we have in boxing. And I, I really think it is a boom. I mean, people say MMA is killing boxing. Just go to that internet and look at how many fights there are in South America, in Europe, in the United States, and then how many MMA events are there. It's a big difference. You have UFC, which does massive crowds because they have loyal fans, but they're not doing eight shows a week. Boxing is doing eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 shows a week with world title fights every week. And they're world title fights, not just the promoter's title. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. And over the last few years, of course, we've been to Wembley three times. Uh, Cardiff twice, so three Wembley Stadium fights, two Cardiff fights, and I just wonder what it's like when you're when you're standing in the middle of the ring in Wembley Stadium because I did a little bit of emceeing a while ago, not at Wembley Stadium. I'm not Carl Froch in front of eighty thousand people, but what I found strange about it, which I wasn't expecting, was that when you're standing in the middle of the ring and the lights come on you then can't really see anybody. You can't really see anyone. You can't really see anyone in the crowd. So you're standing in the middle of Wembley Stadium, in the middle of the ring, however many million people watching it, but you're doing it for the arena rather than for TV. It ends up being both, of course. But there's 90,000 people there, and you can't see any of them. It's a weird little kind of cocoon that you're in there. Yeah, it's... I'll tell you what kind of like hit me when uh, that movie about Freddie Mercury came out last year and they show that scene and you can go to YouTube and see it where he did the uh, the concert and you see the crowd and it's dusk it's still a daylight you know the end of the day when he starts to perform and you see that crowd and I think to myself oh my god I was there with 90,000 people and it's the same sea of, of, of people and everything but you're right, I don't get to see it. It's all in the black. I see all the little lights from their, their cameras that are on and that sort of thing, you know, their cell phones. And it really hit me like, you know, I kind of had that, you know, when uh, Freddie Murphy goes, Deo, and, he, you know, they all come back at him. And when I said, uh, are you ready? And the wave of sound came back, like, from all around me. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. And... Uh, course i you know i get to say let's get ready to rumble and feel the same thing but the energy and the excitement of that klitschko joshua fight is really really hard to surpass when when aj entered and came into that center platform down at the one end of the stadium and then it went up in the air and he turned to the to the back end of the stadium and gave the fans this as the flames went up whoo oh that was that was hot that was exciting and you do like a bit of Sweet Caroline as well. Oh, yeah, I love that song. <laughs> That's, I'd love to get in there and, and get the crowd going with that.
Joking aside, because it's not a laughing matter at all, one of the main problems with performance-enhancing drugs in boxing and the treatment of it is the fact that there is no one overarching body in control of it. So there's no transparency, or very little, and there's no consistency in the way that it's dealt with. Yeah, How you, big a problem is that? There's not even consistency in the testing. How long the way it's dealt with. Not, the consistency is not yeah, even in the testing. And, and you, you, you can't speak out without any proof. Because if you do, it's slander and defamation of character, and and you, you know you don't want to speak innocent until proven guilty and all that. But there's there's no like there's no testing going on, so everybody's innocent until proven. How are you going to get them guilty if the, the testing's horrible? And, and the and testing's the, basic. The, the testing so is basic anyway. so inconsistent. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody's going to be innocent at that point. You know? I mean, you got Lance Armstrong, then who's the most tested athlete in the world, never failed a test, and he was testing way harder back then than boxing is today. So think about how much they have and how van- how much more advanced PEDs are today than they were back then, and he was getting tested stronger then than boxing is today. So, so you, you, t- you think you about two, what well, a joke that is. You two are right at the top of the sport. Tell me about your testing histories. How often were you tested? I mean, every t- towards certainly the last few years, once I was on title level, I test on the night of a fight. You test every fight, but. I wasn't tested out of camp or anything like that. The last few years when the British Border Control brought in random testing, I've done a couple of tests, but, you know, for, for the first few years, I, you know, I, I think the first few years, I don't even think I did a test. Yeah. Yeah, even for me, it was the uh, first years, especially, we just on commission fight night and whatnot, and, uh, you know, fight night, the, committee, the local commission tests you. I mean, I didn't even know this was a problem. I'll tell you until about 2009 or so. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't realize. I didn't realize, like, I didn't you know, this so is a problem. I was totally blindsided by it, and then I started, uh, like, kind of like you know i kind of knew more about the sport and understood like the pacing of a fight and whatnot i started seeing certain guys and then of course i was more into the sport by then i was more on the inside and, and, and a couple of people, of people were speaking out then and as some well. people on the inside told me some things about some very known fighters who i won't even put out there because i wouldn't want to, those people to get in trouble and whatnot but and so i started like saying wow it's like you know even that guy too you know what i'm saying and this guy too wow and then all of a sudden you realize it's all over the place it's actually all over the place. I had no clue. It's all, and it's actually gotten to the point where it's gotten worse. In my opinion, it's gotten worse. You know, um, I think it's got. I think 2010 I think to, was probably the first time. Yeah, I think it's gone to the point I where I started hearing about it. But it, I think it's, it's a lot worse. To, now. I think it was happening before 2010 because the fighters I heard were from before that, but but it wasn't as often. I think at this point it's gotten to the point where if you are an up and coming fighter, you you probably will not win a world title unless you're doping, because this is not Rocky Four. The guy not doping is not beating the guy who dopes. So I think it's gone to the point. And, and people say, oh, you got to speak out against it and, or, or, you know, you speak out against it. So if you speak out against it, you're no, a hater. No one wants the guy to hear it. The guy who doesn't, no one wants to hear it anyway. No one wants to hear it anyway. If you speak out against it, and I, I went through years of speaking out against it, and you become a hater because you don't, you, you're jealous of the guy you can't accomplish with that so-and-so accomplished. Of course you can't accomplish. First of all, it's not to do with jealousy because if, if I was that jealous, I would do it myself. But if, 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 of course you're, you're, you're not going to be able to accomplish what that person accomplished. That's why the person accomplishes it is because they're doping and you're not. So you're always going to accomplish more than you. But really, realistically speaking, it, it's got, it got to the point where probably young generations start to see that and they say they have to dope too. You know, think about it. If you're a world-class fighter and you see a mid-range fighter who's doping and you know, starting to beat world-class fighters, you're that world-class fighter. You're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to let this bum beat me just because he's doping and he's going to carry a crazy pace. I'm going to start doping too. That way, if I run into this bum, I'm going to beat him. You know what I'm saying? Because he's not on my level. But, of course, the, 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 the PEDs are going to put him on my level and maybe past my level. So, so suddenly, that's what these guys are starting to do now. You're starting to realize it. You know, like, I remember when I saw Canelo fail a test and get a slap on the wrist. And then, like, not that long after, Billy Joe Saunders failed a test. People were asking me, like, because I was always outspoken. I was like, what do you want me to tell you? What do, you, what do you want me to tell you about Billy Joe Saunders failing a test when he just witnessed the guy that he's chasing in the weight class fail a test and get a slap on the wrist? And he knows that's the guy he's got to catch if he wants to be the man at that weight class. Billy Joe was already a very good fighter, but to be the man at that weight class, you got to go beat Canelo, who just got a slap on the wrist for doping. What do you want me to tell you? What are you, what are you, 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 are you really that stupid that anybody at middleweight at that point is not going to start doping? To just to go get, to not realize, wow, okay, so this guy's going to do it and he's going to get away with it. He's the guy to beat in the weight class. The only way you're going to beat a dope guy is to dope yourself. It's not, like I said, it's not a movie. So suddenly, you know, you're creating other guys who you're forcing to dope. So at this point, it's all over the place. When you, when you get the random guy who fails a test, it's just bad luck for him. You know, he, oh, he got caught. You know what I'm saying? It's because it's not doesn't mean the other guys are not doping. You know, sometimes it's like, sometimes it's like, oh, one guy fails a test. 
maybe the other guy he was fighting was on it too, but he just didn't fail the test. You know what I'm saying? It's probably it's the case if it's at a high level of the sport. You know, so so it's like, you know, you can't half-ass the testing. You can't half-ass the procedure. You know, you can't do the the okay. We're gonna put Vada. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do like Vada. Vada, I think means well. They have no money. They have no money. I was on the year-round testing program for the last six, seven months of my professional boxing career. You know how many times I got tested? Once. One time in six, seven months. You're going to tell me Vada. And people like, and when people hear that you're on the year-round drug testing program for Vada, people are like, oh, he's on it, so he's clean. But he's not, he didn't sign up for it. He's not clean. I'm telling you, the guy who didn't sign up for it is just scared. Because if he signs up for it and realizes that they're not testing anyway, he's going to have no problem signing up for it. You know what I'm saying? Because even the people that are on it, once they're on the testing program, once they realize you're never getting tested because they have no money, you're gonna, they're going to start doping anyway. You know, that was, the end of my boxing career was like, these people, these people ever show up? They ever show up? Like, so you can be doping anytime you want just because you're on Vada, and they would mean well if they had the money, if they had the funding. Nobody funds them. All these promoters have all this money. All these sanctioning bodies build. They make 75 different titles in every weight class. Think about how much money and sanctioning fees they're collecting. Not one of them gives money to Vada, though. They don't actually spend enough money on Vada. I mean, the WBC does a little bit, but in comparison to all the money the sanctioning bodies make, they could fund Vada very, very easily, at least for year-on strict, consistent drug testing on, on all the world, on all the world-class level and all the world class, and all the all the weight class. They could easily do that, but they don't. So, really, what it comes down to is that currently there is no there is no deterrent, there is no fear factor no. for somebody who's thinking about doing this it's, it's a risk no, worth taking it sounds like you, a terrible thing to say you, but it's a risk worth yeah, taking if you if you say if you say you know what your first failed test four or five year ban your second failed test life you know um, bro you won't even have guys accidentally taking it and stuff you know what I mean like in my in my career like I was scared, like, at times, like, obviously I'm ignorant to this because, you know, these guys, you got these guys doping getting away with it, but I was, I, there were things I wouldn't take because I was scared, like, maybe it'll cause it. Like, I, would, I was scared to take cough medicine. I went camp and cough medicine because I was scared, like, it had, like, some kind of breathing enhancers that might make me fail the test. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was that ignorant to it where, you know, maybe it's going to make you fail the test, maybe it's not, but, like, I was that, like, paranoid about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then you got, you know, y- like... You need to make guys that paranoid. You need to make everybody that paranoid. And the only way you make guys, everybody that paranoid is four or five-year bans the first time, life the second time. Trust me. Then you're going to deal with some real, real deal, some real deal uh, drug, uh, PED fighting. And you're going you're to deal with fighting, fighting the, 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 the epidemic. And then add to that strict, more consistent drug testing, you clean up the sport. But do they want to clean up the sport? I mean, come on. It makes for a good buck if you got a guy who lasts, whose prime lasts 20 years. It makes a nice buck. You know what I'm saying? Because that guy gets more and more notoriety. He becomes more and more popular. So he's making more and more money. And everybody eats off that person. It makes a nice buck if a guy's prime can last for 20 years instead of lasting for the, for the round amount of years that it used to last for. You know what I'm saying? So think about it that way. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend, Rip, and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Well, it's a fairly bleak picture, but I think it's a realistic assessment. I wonder whether other sports, I don't follow them as closely, have got more of a a grip on it than, than boxing has. I think the problem is, as we said, that there is no... There is nobody in charge. There is nobody with the resources and the money available yeah. to, to do the things that Paulie's suggesting. Probably not, because like you say, you look look at cycling, which is kind of universally accepted that most of the top guys and they've are actually doping, fought it a lot. And they've they're actually really tested. Like you say, Lance Armstrong was the most tested athlete in the world, and he never failed a test. Yeah. That's I mean, how flawed the testing is. It's yeah, crazy as compared to the people that that that. And, that are and I used to get a lot of criticism for you know blaming Pacquiao or the things like that you know like you know he, he comes to mind for example Manny Pacquiao turned pro in 1995 1995 you know what I'm saying like 
I didn't start boxing, like my first boxing lesson, like boxing, boxing, like not fighting, my first boxing lesson until June 26, 1997. That's two years after, two and a half years after Manny Pacquiao turned pro. But he was already a pro. I, I was still, I was learning to throw my first jab, you know, in a boxing gym. I went through my entire learning process, started my amateur career, ended my amateur career, turned pro, went up and down in my pro career to the point where one titles came down, up, lost one another title, came down, went through my entire pro career. My pro career ended, and this guy's still headlining pay-per-views, winning fights. I mean, if everybody can turn an eye to that, then you know what? How, what is everybody, I mean, because the fighters aren't stupid. The fans might be stupid. The journalists might be stupid. But the fighters are definitely not stupid. So you're seeing that. Of course everybody's going to start doping. You know what I'm saying? Of course fighters are going to start doping. Because fighters know realistically where you, how long you can last and where you're not supposed to last and your energy level with age and whatnot. Of course they're going to start doping. It's, it, you're leaving them no choice. And that's the point we've gotten to. You're leaving them no choice. Well, let's turn to one other final subject in this uh, analysis of, of the state of boxing, TV. TV has always been an issue, or at least since television was introduced back in the 1950s when television sets started to appear in, in living rooms. Boxing was hugely popular for TV because it was easy to film and it was a huge sport then and they could put it on pretty much every night of the week. Now, as time has progressed, obviously the number of channels has increased and that has led to problems because promoters sign up with individual broadcasters, Matchroom and Sky. That's who we're working for this weekend. Paulie, you do a lot of stuff for Showtime, obviously, over in the United States. HBO is, is no more, which came as quite a shock to a lot of people in the UK. I'd imagine you probably and your colleagues on Showtime and on other channels saw that coming. But there's ESPN now getting more into boxing. Fox, zone, of course. And in one way, it does give more exposure to the sport because certainly in the UK uh, when Box Nation was showing a lot of overseas cards there was basically nothing that we couldn't see and there were fights from all over the world that we never would have seen previously that we that we were seeing but with all these channels comes all these alliances and it does lead to problems when it comes to making the big fights Mm -hmm. generally is the kind of saturation almost of TV does it bring more positives than negatives? Um, I like it because it gives chance fighters a chance to get paid more than, than they used to. You know, the more and more television networks involved, the more the more dates there are, the more dates there are, the more fighters can get paid. Um, you know, it's funny people talk about bad about boxing, but reality, MMA has the worst problem than this. I mean, MMA. If you sign with the UFC, you cannot fight the Bellator champion. You cannot fight the the one champion. Like they make like an MMA, it's the fights. All the fights get made. All the fights get made within one governing body. They don't get made. It's like. It's like if PBC fighters all fought only PBC fighters. Sure, they, it's easy to make. That's, that's what happens in boxing. But then you want to see fighters fight guys who are aligned to somebody else. You know, in MMA, you never even have that demand because you know it's not possible because from the rules, the rules have been that like that for so long. But in reality, you're supposed to be able to see the UFC champion fight the one champion or the UFC champion fight the Bellator champion or vice versa or whatnot. So like all these people that complain about it, like it's happening in other sports and, 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 and boxing is killing itself because it, it doesn't make the fights, but MMA makes the fights. No, MMA makes the fights only within their certain organizations, so they don't make the fights. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not going to make certain fights in MMA either, no matter what. So, so I think, I think realistically, it's just that the MMA is less splintered off because yeah, you've said Bellator, Obama, you know, yeah, UFC, yeah. but there's not so many where I think in boxing you've you know you've got different networks that are, you know what I mean. Yeah, it, it, it's, it just but, but you there's have, more in boxing. But you 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 have a great fight, like you have Spence versus Porter coming right now. It's a great fight, right? But people want to see Spence versus Crawford. They want to see the one they can't make in the alliances, right? So, so like, you can easily wind up with that, with that in, uh, um, in, in, in MMA. And so, I mean, you, Demetrius Johnson is signed with one. Henrik Cejudo's fights with, Cejudo fights with the UFC. They're, they're both top, top fighters. You don't even see the demand because the, the one guy left the UFC and went to one. You don't, that's a great fight. You you don't even see the demand. Like, they don't even clamor for it because they know it's not possible. In boxing, there's a clamor for it because if you clamor enough for it, you'll make the fight. In MMA, you can clamor till you turn blue. You're not going to get that fight. You know what I'm saying? So, so all of a sudden, people make like, oh, it's, it's better. No, I think in better, it's better in boxing because at least if you clamor enough in boxing, you might get the fight. 
Yeah, and I think the, the reality is you have to accept that think times change. You know, years ago, there was terrestrial TV, television changed. Sky Sports satellite mm-hmm. TV came in. You would have had HBO and Showtime would have come in. They carried boxing. You know, then you had the pay-per-view launch. Then, then people got used to pay-per-views. Even there being lots of pay-per-views, they got used to it. Then it was, now the streaming platforms have come in. You know, The Zone and, you know, Netflix, Disney, Amazon. It, TV's changing all the time. Social media, YouTube channels. So I just think that you just, you know, everyone can hold on to, oh, well, in back in the day of terrestrial TV. Yeah, but we're not back in the day of terrestrial TV. We're, we're in 2019. Yeah. Before TV. So you got to move with the times, before, don't you? Before TV, they used to sell out stadiums constantly. Why? Because the only way you would see the fight is live. So, of course, you sold out stadiums everywhere you went. You know what I'm saying? Like, once people got it on TV, you stopped selling out stadiums because people could watch it on TV. I mean, it doesn't mean it's less popular in that way. You know, people are always going to complain. Um, I don't think boxing. I think people is- always romanticize about the past as well. Oh, we're back in the day and this and that. And yeah, because it, they were younger, so you always, you always, <laughs> you always nice. It's always nice to think about your youth because it's nicer time. Yeah, and, and, and you know, but the, the bottom line is, there's loads of fighters out there today that you know, th- this fight on Saturday night's a sellout. You know, it's a guy from the Ukraine and and Luke Campbell who's from Hull and they're fighting in London. It's a sellout, it's a world title fight. He's one of the, you know, he's probably the Lionel Messi of boxing right now. You know, and. The amount of events over the last few years that have sold out at the O2, at the MEN Arena, that have done big numbers on pavements, stadiums, you know, Wembley Stadium, Cardiff. So, you know, boxing isn't in that unhealthy a situation, certainly not in the UK. Like, I don't, you know, yeah, there was the glory days of the Ben Bank Terrestrial TV, but like I say, that, that was a long, long time ago. You move with the times, you know. The, the, and also, the, there's nothing stopping Terrestrial TV from getting back involved. Yeah. They choose not to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in the US, they have Fox. We have Fox. That's uh, Fox. Fresh uh, Real Fox televises certain certain fight cards that Fox has under their contract with PBC. Some of them wind up on Fox Sports, which is non-terrestrial TV, and some of them are on pay-per-view. But some of the big fights from PBC wind up on terrestrial Fox. Yeah, I mean, glo- glo- globally, globally, there's more boxing on television. Yeah, there are more television channels and with the stream channels that's, there's that's more just access the way it is anyway with, well. with every sport there's more with television full stop you, like Netflix you can watch what you want when you want how you want you know what I mean that's just that's just the way television's gone now and I think I think you know instead of sitting here complaining about it I think you've just got to move with the times when you've got two Olympic gold medals yeah the assumption would be that you can if you were a man you'd be Vasily Lomachenko, because he won two Olympic gold medals. Mm. The assumption would be that you could choose your promoter and basically name your price. What actually happened? Um, well, my first fight, I fought for 50000 which is more than a lot of guys making their pro debuts. And then my second fight was probably the same, and then it went down after that, then it went back up. But now my purse, my last fight was for three hundred k, And um, that's more than what a lot of women are making. I think that's the most that I've heard a woman fighter making. Probably Katie Taylor has, has made more, I think. But I'm not really sure. Um, but that's a lot to make in, to being a woman fighter. But I shouldn't say that that's a lot to make for being a woman fighter. It should be, if I was a two-time Olympic gold medalist man and the fastest boxer become a three-time division world champion, what would be my purse? And I feel like my purse should be millions of dollars because I came from 168 pounds to 160 to now 154 to become a champion. And um, I just have to keep making the demands, and that's why I don't understand where all the hate comes from comes from with these other female fighters because I'm not only vouching for myself, but I'm vouching for them. You know, some people tell me that these girls aren't worth more than $10,000, and I'm like, look, there's no way you're going to pay me three hundred k and give my opponent $10,000. It's just not fair. You know, like we have to um, figure out a way to make – to where it's, it's, it's equal. Like, there's always an A and a B side, but the girls who fight me get their biggest purse of their life, and I'm just trying to let, trying to always want more. They say, hey, when I, when I fought against Christina Hammer, I think the fight was for 125000 I was fighting my next fight, and they're like, hey, it's going to be 150000 And I said, I, I will not be getting in the ring for 150000 And they're like, well, how much do you want to get in the ring for? I said, I'm not getting in the ring for less than three hundred k And that's the fight that I had with, Ivana and that's what they paid me but you have to know your worth and speak up for that and a lot of women don't know their worth and some women overprice themselves by saying that they're worth more you know you just have to really put the work in just like Hannah said mm. and really build yourself and your and your platform and and my 
people who who are watching me has went up the roof just in the just in the past year of how many fans I have, how many viewers tune into the fight, how many more haters I have. Also, it, it all it, it all works itself out. So it's like I try to let them and let let my promoter and just Showtime know like, look, there's a reason I'm I'm fighting the main event on Showtime and. I get viewership. I sell tickets. I sell out. Of, yeah. I, I sell out venues. So it's like with that, you have to pay for that. And a lot of women are like, "Oh, well, they're already giving you so much. That, you know, you don't want to ask." It's like there's not too much to ask for. Guys are discussing millions, and I'm still discussing three hundred and four hundred thousand dollars. When it's like, I need to be able to say I made a million dollars for a purse, and that needs to be this year. I wonder to what extent you did you know how you would be received in terms of your personality and the fact that you're not willing to change or back down because be, be, being black you are only ever you're, you're, you're only ever just touching distance away from, from the angry black woman stereotype and mm-hmm. did you I don't know are these things that you need to that you thought about at all are, are, they, are these issues for you you know what when I first turned pro and I was saying talking about how great I was because I had just won two Olympics and I was turning pro, and I had said, I am the resurrection of female boxing, right? And they were like, whoa. And I was like, well, I'm just speaking fact, the truth. That's a massive shout, isn't it? <laughs> I'm I like, love because it, I love it's it. been dead for 20 years. Now, I'm like, I'm not going to say the Jesus, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm raising it up. I'm raising the dead up from women's boxing, right? And they're like, Whoa. Wait a minute. So then, after me and French John had this four-round war, they're like, whoa, this girl can fight. She won, and it shows that there's other great women fighters, too, because the fight with me and French John was so competitive. Then from there, my third fight, I fight for a world title against a girl who's 17-0, six knockouts, and I knock her out. Now I'm really yelling to the roof. I'm the greatest woman of all time. They're like, whoa. Where is this greatest woman of all time coming from? People see me as being soft-spoken before, but I've never been soft-spoken except for when I was a kid. Since I've been boxing, I've always been women, being the best, I'm the best. I've always been like that. But I I did get criticized at the beginning, but they stopped criticizing me because they figured out that I don't care. They... They figured out that I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to talk trash if I want to. And it's my career. See, when you you have to put some of these reporters in their place, you cannot tell me how a world champion acts because you're not a world champion. You're a reporter. You're a writer. You're a journalist. I'm a world champion. You can't tell me how much confidence I should and shouldn't have. You're not in a gym. You, you wasn't in a gym working out with me. You wasn't there when my body was sore. When yep. I had to go get in the ice tub because I literally, my my freaking traps are stuck to my neck. You don't, you, you, you wasn't with me. So when I hear people say, oh, women need to be like this. How do you know if you're not a woman? Yeah, you're not very, a woman. Very, very true. Very true. You're not a woman. <laughs> you're not a fighter. Yep. You cannot tell me how to carry myself. It's a preference. And the thing I've been trying to let everybody know is that every woman fighter is different. You have your yep. Adrian Broners. You have your Andre Wards. Then you have your in the middle, Terrence Crawford, where he talks a little bit of trash, but not that much. But Andre Ward never talked trash. Always spoke about God. And then you have Adrian Broner, talks about money, <laughs> girls, the people he want to fight, Gucci. Then you got Floyd, who went from being like Adrian Broner to turning around and being the kind of humble champion, but he still let everybody know he had money. So it's like, why do guys get to have all these different characters? Characters, yeah. But a but a woman fighter is supposed to be one thing. pretty, wear yeah, skirts. It comes, it comes back to that, spoken. doesn't it? Yeah. That you're supposed yeah. to know your place and behave in a way that society feels that that that, that you should. But it's... I don't care about none of that. I'm gonna do what I want to do. So there you go. I hope that was of interest. Those excerpts with Thomas Hauser, Steve Farad, Michael Buffer, Paulie Malinaji and Claressa Shields. And if you haven't listened to the full episodes with some, any or all of those five, then do go back through the list and find them. They're all well worth a listen. And we'll be back with more shortly. 
In the meantime, stay well. And old Lucy Brown Yes, that light falls on the right, babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.